as a day we look forward to when he comes back for us. And until the meantime, we sing the song of forgiven, drowning out the Amazon rain. Who thought that would be so applicable in Alaska in late November, right? But here we are. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm, I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Peninsula Grace. It's a privilege to be able to open the word with you this morning. So if you have a copy uh, digitally in print, I uh, invite you to open that up to John chapter 8 as we're moving through this gospel uh, together. And so uh, they say, I've been told, when you marry a spouse, you marry into their family. And I've definitely found that to be true here uh, a few years into my own marriage. Uh, Jill and I have two very different families. Uh, there's the, the Frankinos and the Whippermans. The Whippermans. We are Italian and German coming together. What could go wrong, right? Uh, Jill's family is delightful. We go down there for Christmas every other year, and they gather around the piano. They're all singing in, like, four-part harmonies. Uh, I like to call them the Vaughn Whippermans, right? Uh, they go caroling in the back of their family pickup, more four-part harmonies, and they're in California, so they can do that in, in December, right? Um, the worst thing I've ever heard come out of my wife's mouth is poopy doop. Like, that's when you know you're into also crud nuggets, so... Freud could have a heyday with her fecal fascination. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, their, their family group text is always filled with, like, sunset pictures. And like, oh, sis, great pick. Oh, great. And, like, prayer requests and just very, very loving family. My family. Uh, let's just say that I've, I've, I've joked that this is going to be the first time somebody married a pastor and they're the ones being corrupted, right? That's how I think it's flowing. My family group text is like sarcasm central, right? It's dog eat dog. Uh, picturing my family singing Christmas carols together is hilarious. Like that would, ne- it would turn into a WWE smackdown before we were the Vaughn Frankinos. Um, our marriage is a tale of two very different families. You could sum us up by saying there's a family of light and then there is a family of darkness. Um, but I'm, I'm, it's hyperbole. I'm about to make a point. Okay, relax. So in the Bible, right, there, we, or we hear a story, a tale of two families, two very different families. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, God speaks creation into existence. The father of all creation uh, makes everything good. It's light into a darkness. But then in Genesis chapter 3, just two pages later, we see a snake slithering into a garden, seeking to wreck that good, to snuff out that light. And as God curses the serpent, He says these words in Genesis 3.15, super central to our understanding of the Bible's storyline. God said to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman. So the serpent and and Eve, the woman, right? And between your offspring, all that come from the serpent, and uh, her offspring. And then he says, he, the seed of the woman, will strike the head of Satan himself, and you will strike his heel. It's enigmatic, but there's this speaking of these two seeds, of the, of the serpent, those who follow the way of the serpent, and those of, of the seed of the promise. We see the promise that one day, the seed coming from the woman, an offspring from the woman, will defeat, will crush the head of the serpent. We hear whispers of the gospel on page three of our Bible. And so the rest of the story, we see these, these two fathers emerge, so to speak, and, and there are these two polar opposite families that are, are developed, uh, one of light and one of dark, one of, of good and one of evil. And the rest of the Bible is unfolding this, this story. 
where the serpent's seed uh, spreads throughout the earth, symbolic of the evil in, in man's wicked hearts. But God, by his grace alone, he preserves this line, this seed of promise from Seth to Abraham to David to Jesus himself. And as this global population grows, we see these two different sons obeying two very different fathers, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And here in John chapter 8, we see Jesus doing the hard work of showing those who think they're born of the right father that they're actually not. One of, the, one of the hardest things is to preach the gospel to people who don't think they need it. Or, uh, even harder yet, those who think they've already got it, but they don't. So I want us to humble our, ourselves before the Lord this morning, so that in introspection that we're not in one of those camps, not having ears to hear a gospel, thinking that we're okay, and not having hearts to receive the Lord Christ. I want us to look at the, the one who came from the Father of Light, coming to those under the father of darkness. So first of all, the one from the father of light. Now, we're going to pick it up in John 8, 12. So follow along. Uh, if you notice there that we've skipped 11 verses, okay? We're, we're jumping over uh, the last verse of John 7 and the first 11 verses of John 8. Many of you know this story. It's the story of the, of the woman caught in adultery, and the Pharisees are wanting to stone her. Jesus says, okay, the first one that's sinless, you can pick up a stone. And then when everybody leaves, he tells the woman, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. It's a beautiful story. Some beautiful truths. However, um, we're not going to preach on that this morning. And I just wanted a teaching moment as into why we wouldn't. So a couple of things going on here. Um, This story is is absent from all the best manuscripts we have, including every manuscript in the original languages for the first 500 years after the event had occurred. Um, Also, as you read through the storyline, the flow right from 752 to pick it back up in 812 is seamless. And so it really feels like there's kind of an awkward forcing of the story into the text. And then finally, um, the, the style and vocabulary of this particular story is very different from the rest of John's gospel. And it doesn't stand out to maybe us as English readers today, but if you were part of the original audience, you would really notice. Um, This is like if you were reading the King James Version, and all of a sudden it sounded a lot more like the message, right? Where are my these and my thous, right? And and, and there's a a big difference in 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 the words that are being used and the style that they're being delivered in. So having said that, we would say, well, why are they even in our Bibles? And your translation might have some brackets or some asterisks explaining some of that around it. But... We, we do see that this, most scholars would agree, this probably happened. Like, this probably isn't made up. This, this, this really a, was a real event in real history. We have no doubt, at this, any reason to believe otherwise. Um, also, we don't see any truths in this passage contradict any other truths in the rest of Scripture. So we would say, I would say the best practice is to go ahead and read it and even love it. And again, hear me, it's a beautiful story. But I would only draw from it what we also see elsewhere and nowhere elsewhere we find it in our Bibles. The places that we can be confident are from God. Um, There's no contradictions, but we wouldn't want to build doctrine on this passage alone. So, again, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with reading it, and I don't think there's anything wrong with preaching it. But we're just going to err on that side of caution and not do so this morning. So with that said, we're picking it up in verse 12 of chapter 8. Jesus says the following words. He spoke to them again. He's talking to the Pharisees in context. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Jesus, we said in the Gospel of John, is depicted of saying seven I am statements, things about his identity. We already saw in John 6, I am the bread of life. Here we're going to see I am the light of the world. And if you were with us last week in John chapter 7, we are at the end of a week-long festival, the Festival of Shelters. And this was the Jewish people celebrating God's faithfulness, remembering the time when he was with them in the desert with this fledgling nation traveling to the promised land, and they were, they were living in tents in the desert. So the people pitched tents throughout this week and celebrate. And at nighttime, they would light these four candelabras around the temple. And the people would, would see those lights, and it would remind them of the pillar of fire back in, in the desert, when God was leading them in the darkness, his faithful presence guiding them to the promised land. And so many people would, would hold torches in their hands. They're singing psalms. Some say that they sang all night, every night, for the entire week. And this orchestra would cut loose. And you know the Jewish people, they know how to clap and dance, right? I was just in a, at a, did a wedding a couple weeks ago uh, with some, really, some Jewish elements in it. And the husband at the end smashed the glass and everybody starts doing the, the dancing and clapping. And it was an amazing time. I'm thinking about integrating that to more of the weddings that I put on because it was a blast. But as we sang with joy all night long, the people would be seeing this light and not just filling the temple, but flooding all of Jerusalem. And in, in light of that, see what I did there? In light of that? Because it's, okay. Um, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Like those candelabras, that celebration is all about me. In fact, he even says at the end of chapter 12, whoever, or in the end of verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Have you ever walked around in darkness? Like even your own bedroom in the dark gets turned into a house of horrors, right? It's just a toe and shin gauntlet as you're trying to make it to the bathroom and just survive. Uh, Jesus says, man, without me, you can't see reality for what it is. You, you, you can't know who you really are, who your God really is, and how to walk as he requires you to. And it, and it ends in destruction. And not just of your toes and your shins, but of your very soul. We're not playing games here. And just like the, the pillar of fire led Israel in the darkness to the promised land, Jesus says, follow me and I will lead you where you need to go. Psalm 119 You've heard it said, we're going KJV here today. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is God's word revealed to us that shows us the illumined path forward. That's what's beautiful here. Remember in John chapter 1, what's the language? The word of God has been made flesh and now dwells among us. And his life here on earth is the light of men. And the same God who spoke light into darkness on page one of our Bibles is once again entering into our cosmos, bringing light where we desperately need it. And we're going to talk about this more next week in John 9, when he gives sight to a blind man and, and, and talks to the Pharisees who, who have physical vision, but he says, spiritually, you are actually the ones in darkness. The rest of this chapter deals with where is Jesus' light coming from, his source, his origin, versus the audience he's talking to that is from darkness, this tale of these two fathers. So if you jump down with me uh, to verse 23, listen to the language of Jesus talking about him and his father. He says in verse 23, you are from below, he told them, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father, capital F. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, a reference to the cross, right? Then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. He says, I have come from my father. And you hear the language here. Jesus says, I'm always with my father. My father is with me. I've been sent from my father to teach what he teaches, to show what he wants me to show. And what he's saying here is the, the words that I'm saying and the authority behind the words that I'm saying are from my father, who is God himself. But he makes an even bolder claim here. Did you hear his words? He said, if you do not believe that I am he, that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Like Jesus is not mincing words with the Pharisees and his audience here. He says, you must believe that I am he. Now, the words here that I've highlighted for you, I am he, are the Greek words ego, I me. Say that. Ego, I me. One more time. Ego, I me. You're speaking Greek and you meant it. That was beautiful. I am. Now, in Greek, that's just the words I am. And like in English, that can just mean, I can just say, ego, I, me, hungry, right? <laughs> and not after this weekend, <laughs> preach, but I, 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 it's just a normal way of speaking, right? So there was nothing special about ego, I, me, necessarily. When we hear I am, like when God claims I am in the Old Testament, we'll talk about that. But there, and we see nine times, even in just this chapter, Jesus says, I am, ego, I, me. But what we want to zero in on, there are three times that we believe he's making an explicit reference to his divinity. We see it in verse 24 and 28 that we just read, that I am he. And then we're going to see it big time at the end in verse 58. That Jesus here is, is riffing on Isaiah 40 through 55, the, the, por the portion of Isaiah's prophecies that really zero in on the Messiah. And, he, and, he's, and he's speaking to his own divinity. And if you remember, when, God, when, when Moses is approached by God, or like Moses comes to the burning bush, and he says, who am I going to say that sent me? What did God, out of the burning bush, told, tell him? He said, I am sent you. And in fact, he uses the same, in, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same ego, I, me. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you were to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. One of the context clues is when grammatically that doesn't really make sense, right? This was his revelation of I am the self-existent one. I am who I am. And so Jesus here is applying this I am statement to himself. He's talking to his own deity, that he is God. And the crowds didn't miss that. And brothers and sisters, neither should we. Here we see a claim about Jesus that we need to believe. A, we must believe that Jesus is ego I me, that he is the I am. That Jesus is of the Father. And by that mean, we mean of the same God substance. Jesus is God. And a lot of times we try to neuter that part of Jesus or if you Google Jesus is my boyfriend worship songs, it's hilarious. You get 10, 15 minutes of easy entertainment there. But just us, us speaking about Jesus just like, you know, just like we would have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a buddy of ours. Now, please hear me. Jesus is our friend, right? 
but he is also God. He is the one that is worthy of all of our allegiance, all of our worship and praise. And many, many even today would say, he's a good teacher. You've seen the bumper stickers. I like Jesus, but just not his followers. Right? There are a lot of people who are fine. They really like and benefit. They, they see the good in what Jesus was teaching. Even those who will say he was a God or a prophet from God, like the Mormon church. But that's not enough. That's not what the Bible, that's what Jesus is claiming about himself. And but listen, believing that Jesus is the ego I me is central to the gospel. Because only God himself could be a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. If another human was to die, they would have to die over and over again. And even that wouldn't get the job done because we're sinful. It needed to be an eternal sacrifice from a perfect source. That could only be God himself. The question for us this morning is, do we believe that Jesus is the I am, the ego I me? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is God? And just like God, Jesus is worthy of all of our worship, all of our obedience and allegiance, to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We also must believe that he was sent to give life, that Jesus is not just of the Father, God himself, but he was sent from the Father. So we believe that the Bible teaches a trinity, that there are three persons, but one God. And we would say Jesus is the second person of the, the Trinity, sent from the first person, the Father himself. And you listen to this relational language in, in, in verses 28 and 29. It said, I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Do you hear the interaction of the, these two persons of the Godhead? And then he says, at this moment, they will know that I am of the Father and that I'm from the, mo the Father. And what moment does he say? Look at verse 28. When you what? Lift up the Son of Man. You will know that ego I me, that I am he. He says, here's the dividing line. When you see me hanging on the cross, there will be those who see with the eyes of faith that this is God himself crucified on our behalf and those who don't. So we asked this morning, that dividing line question, do you believe that God himself hung on the cross for your sins? Some of us fail to believe that we need that. Other of us, we're, others of us are still trying to make payments on that sin when it's been paid in full. We believe that, that we can out-sin the grace of God. Some of us struggle to actually believe that, right? I do. But it's not just enough to see the light. See, the, the path is illuminating, the, way, the, the light is illuminating the path forward. Why? So that we follow it. That we walk down that path. And the rest of John 8, Jesus wants to show his audience they're doing neither. They're not seeing the light, and they're certainly not following it. The one that came from the Father in light comes to those under darkness. And listen to his words here as he presses in. He, it just gets harder, his teaching. In verse 30, he says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there are some who are mapping onto this, and they're, they're, they're going with Jesus. But then in verse 31, it says, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So these are the ones that so far are good with it. He says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you hear the conditional clause? You like what I'm saying so far, but to truly be a disciple of mine, you gotta be willing to follow me all the way down the road, to believe who I'm about to say I am, and to believe what I'm about to say about you. 
there's a cost here to following Jesus. And I would say it this way, Jesus is teaching here that perseverance is the mark of a true faith and real disciples. It's not the seed that pieces out the moment it gets hard. It's the seed that perseveres, that believes what God is saying about Jesus and continues, he says the word here, continues in his word to show that we really are disciples. And the Holy Spirit's going to press into that in our hearts too. Are you sure you want to follow? Have you really counted the cost? Do you know what he's calling you into? Do you know what the road is ahead? But notice here in verse 32, he says the cost is worth it. He says you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. To which they go, free from what? Look at the next. There's three things we're going to see about the children of dark that Jesus is addressing. The first is that they're slaves of sin. Verse 33, they respond to Jesus. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that we will become free? They go, what do you mean, Jesus? What do we need freedom from? Now, they can't just simply be thinking about political freedom, right? Like, they're under subjugation of Rome in that moment. It's a much shorter list of the nations that they haven't been enslaved to, right? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Syria, Rome, Greece, right? So for the Israelites to say, slave to who, would be like Solomon saying, what wife, <laughs> right? Some of you are still, oh, because he had lots of, okay. They're probably not referencing political freedom, right? I think what they're referencing to is who they are as the privileged children of God. That we claim God is our father and we have his truth, right? We have the Torah. We have his law. We, we're good. Like, we're his people. We don't need freed from anything, right? But I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, their very words demonstrate their slavery, Their very words demonstrate their slavery because they don't see their true need before God. And therefore, they can't see his solution literally standing right in front of them. And when we sin, two things we see here. Look at what Jesus says in verse 34. He responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Did you hear what he said? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And I think we could take two meanings from that. Number one, practicing sin evidences slavery, right? You're showing that you are a slave to sin. And practicing sin actively enslaves the one who's committing the sin. Romans 6 speaks to this. Paul says, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of that one you obey, either of sin leading to death, that's the way of the serpent, or of obedience, right, implied unto God, leading to righteousness, right right relationship before the Father and right living. When we sin, we evidence who our real master is. And all of us who are born in sin, right, from Adam and Eve, we can only sin. Like, apart from God, the seed of the serpent... has one master, and it must obey. It's what Romans 6 unpacks. We had to obey sin. But sin also actively enslaves. In other words, the more you give yourself to something, the more that enslaves you. And we see this in the nature of addiction. I've certainly experienced this in my own life. What we give ourselves to, what we worship, what we deem as most worthy, our attention and our time, our allegiance, that becomes our God. It becomes our functional master. Jesus says the following, verse 35, a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain. If the son sets you free, you really will be free. He says, I am the only one who comes from the father of light, and I have come to set the captives free. But so far, a lot of these guys don't realize that they need freed in the first place. The second marker we see of children of darkness is that they are murderers. 
So Theodore Scott Franchino is my father. He's not a murderer, like in the literal sense. That's not why. Just make the jump with me. Just hang on. Uh, He's my father. So I resemble him in likeness, right? I got from him those Italian disarmingly good looks. Uh, I also act like him, right? We get really confused when we're trying to hang Christmas lights. Um, we, we, are, we are alike in so many ways. And in, in I, would, I would say that we, in likeness and in conduct. Now, listen to the, the pushback from the Jewish people here, the leaders. He said, our father is Abraham, they replied. So wait a second, Jesus. How dare you? We're Abraham's children. We are chosen children of the promised line. But Jesus is going to respond here, just like me with my father, Theodore Scott. Sonship implies a resemblance that we will look like our fathers and we will act like our fathers, not just physically descending. Look at what he says here in verse 39. Uh, If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth from what I, well, that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. He says, Abraham never would have killed, tried to kill me. Your evidencing and your conduct, you resemble a very different father. And then this is interesting. Look at the end of verse 41. They said to Jesus, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. So I think they're, they're pushing back and Jesus implying that they are like literally bastard children from a different father. I think they also might be taking a dig at Jesus here, right? We're not from a different father. We're not born out of fornication. Wink, wink, Mr. Virgin birth. Right, right? I think they're mocking Jesus and his scandalous background of birth. Jesus points to the evidence of the slavery to sin. And he goes, you look just like your father, Satan. (laughs) This gets real spicy. Look at the verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. I love that. If God were your father, he would love me. Because I came from God, and I am here. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Here's why. Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. These are hard words. Because the devil was, the, was a murderer from the beginning. Where do we see that beginning? take shape in his heart, but here on earth we see it evidenced as he slithers into that garden and leads Adam and Eve through temptation into what? Into death, right? Their effective murder. And not just Adam and Eve's death, but of the whole human race. Romans 5 says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. It was the temptation of this serpent in the garden that led to the effective murder of the human race. And this is the seed of the serpent. Those slaves to sin following the way of evil, not the way of the father of light. And Jesus says, you're acting just like your father. You're actively trying to kill me, snuffing out, the, trying to snuff out the light of the world just like he did in the garden. Children of the dark are murderers. They're also liars. Verse 44 says there's, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. What was Satan's tool in the garden? The only tool he had against an almighty God, lies. 
He said, God didn't say that, right? He started to get them to doubt, to not believe the truth of what God had said. So he speaks the opposite. You're not going to die. Your God's holding out on you. And the father of lies leads them astray. He goes on to say in verse 45, yet because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to the words of God. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. So it's just like your dad. You actually can't believe me, because I'm speaking the truth. Romans 1 says, this is what we do in darkness. We suppress the light. We don't want there to be another God. We want to be our own gods. So anything that, that conflicts with that, out the window. Now, you might be going, wait a second. Like, I'm not a murderous liar like John's audience, right? That's the exact same thing. That's their retort. How dare you call us murderous liars, Jesus? We're God's people. But when we reject Jesus, whether like categorically and we're not following him at all, or those little mini decisions throughout the day, we're functionally walking in the way of the serpent. We're calling God a liar, saying Jesus isn't who God claims he is. And we're effectively yelling out with the mobs, crucify him, crucify him. When do we do that? Well, we reject our true father, first of all, when we don't walk in the son's light as Lord. Remember, Jesus isn't just our boyfriend. Jesus isn't just our buddy. He is the king of the universe. He is Lord. He is God. And when we don't love him, when we don't obey him and follow, remember he said, continuing in his word, we're not bowing the knee, we're not loving him with every thought, every word, every action, we are effectively rejecting him and murderous liars like the rest of the crew here. We also reject our true father when we don't embrace the son's gift as savior. Some of us are still treating our sin like it's hypothetical. We say, yeah, on paper I know everybody's sin. Like probably nobody here would claim to be perfect. If you are, we've got great counseling lined up for you. We can, we can check that out. But until we see the depth of our sin, we will not see the beauty of our savior. And there's others of us who reject the son's gift by saying, no, 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 that Jesus couldn't speak into my problems, my shame, my guilt. And we reject him because either we think we're too good for Jesus or we think we're too bad for Jesus. But it's effectively the same thing. It's not just that I've done a few bad things, guys. <laughs> I was a slave to sin and I needed rescue from outside of myself. How was that provided? The last thing we see in our teaching, the path from the father of darkness to the father of light. What does that look like? Jesus says, without equivocation, I am the path. Look at verse 51. He says, truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's amazing. He will never see death. He said earlier, verse 12, follow me, I'm the light of the world, and you will not walk in darkness. It's two different ways of saying the same thing. Now how do we look to Jesus? He compares it back to the father. They're claiming Father Abraham. He says, yeah, let's talk about Abraham for a second. Verse 52. The Jews said, now we know you have a demon, right? We know, we know you're demon-possessed, Jesus. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you think you are? Who do you claim to be? I love what Jesus says about Abraham. Look, jump down to verse 56. Your father Abraham, 
the one you claim, right? Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And then listen to what he says. He saw it and was glad. Says Abraham rejoiced. Like he, he saw my day, Jesus says, and was glad. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? Now, Jesus doesn't unpack that, and there's a, scholars can disagree on it, maybe exactly what he's implying. But w- one of, the, one of the, the stories I thought about in connecting this, Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham, who wasn't able, to, he was told, right, the seed of promise is going to come through you, Abraham, the one that's going to bless all nations, going to crush the head of the, of the, of the serpent. He's going to come from your line. Only problem was he didn't have a child. So God graciously, miraculously intervenes and give him, gives him a child. And then he says, take that only child and put him on an altar and kill him. And in that moment in Genesis 22, when he's about to do by faith what doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. How is God going to keep his promise to save mankind when I'm about to murder my only son? In that moment, what happens in Genesis 22? He sees something. As in verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. He went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham sees a perfect substitute. And he says, he named that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And we have every reason to believe this was the very same spot that the Lamb of God would hang. Innocent substitute, a sacrifice for the world. Thousands of years later. Abraham didn't know how God was going to fulfill his promises. How is God going to come through on this one? Hebrews 11 says, he thought maybe he'd raise him for the dead. I I don't know. But I love what what Hebrews 11 says in this moment. It, It says of Abraham and many others who looked forward. It says, these all died in faith. Like Abraham died and there was, there was sin still abounding, right? Like it would feel like God failed in his promises. I died. Like I didn't see this snake-crushing deliverer come. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised yet, right? But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And Jesus says, Abraham would never have killed the one that the father sent which is so cool to think about because Abraham, how did he evidence that, the faith in his father? By being willing to kill the son of the father and say, somehow, my God is going to provide. And for us to sing the children's song, Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them, so are you. That doesn't mean to be a physical descendant from Abraham. We don't have to have Jewish blood coursing through our veins. And it certainly doesn't mean that we have to be good on our own, which is good news because we were born slaves in sin and that would be impossible. What it means is like Abraham, to be a child of Abraham means to see the perfect substitute that Abraham saw and to trust it as the only way of God fulfilling his promises. Galatians unpacks this. It says, in the same way, Abraham believed in God, counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not because he was good on his own, right? He believed that another one would come to be good for him. The real children of Abraham, Paul says, then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles, 
That's the rest of us, Italians like me, Germans like my wife. This time, God will make the Gentiles right in his sight. How? Because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So, all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing that Abraham received because of faith. To be children of Abraham is to believe in the substitute as he did. And look at how he lands the plane here, end of the chapter, verse 57. The Jews replied, you're not 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? They're like, "We're so, well, time out. Like, how did you see him? How did he see you? What's going on here? In verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And here's that third and most explicit reference. And once again, we have him before Abraham was, ego, I me, I am. Now, this is not just bad grammar, right? Like my old mentor Larry used to, when we were finishing up our meeting times, he'd say, well, time to went. Some of you are like, yeah, that, that's fine. What's wrong with that? All right. Um, so he, notice he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. Right? He's not just simply saying I existed back then. When he speaks to his deity, he's speaking to his eternality. We're going to sing it later. Who was and who is and who is to come. That Jesus is the eternal God and he's come. He said, if who believes in me will never taste death. Only the eternal one could offer eternal life. His claim here to be the ego I me, the I am, is undeniable. In fact, we know that that's what they were picking up on because in verse 59, they start picking up stones. They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. I like to see that in an action scene. I don't know how that all played out. But they, they, they hear blasphemy because they hear Jesus is saying, I am. Jesus' teaching in John 8 is clear. Ego, I me. I am the light of the world. And just like Abraham and, and all who believed before us we look forward. Most of us will probably physically die before Jesus comes back, not receiving the fullness of the promise. But we see it today from afar. That there's a day coming, the day of the Messiah, Zechariah 14, that was talking about this festival and its fulfillments in Christ. It says there's a day coming where even in evening it will be light. Now, those of us in Alaskan summer, we're like, yeah, that's just you know, four months of the year, right? But that's a reference to a day coming when there is no more slavery to sin, where there is no more death, there is no more murder, there are no more lies, and we will be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, welcomed back into our Father's arms as his adopted sons and daughters forever. Hallelujah. And the gospel states that our hope for this day, our hope being back in the Father's arms forever is not in our ability to faithfully father, follow God. Praise the Lord, because I can't. And it's not in our ability to never sin in the ways of the murderous, lying seed that we come from. Our hope is like Abraham, that we would see Jesus, the perfect substitute ram, who lived a perfect life on our behalf, that died into our place to raise to new life, and not just for himself, but to raise with him siblings, sons and daughters of the Father of light. And now, with the Spirit in us, we can start to evidence our sonship and our daughtership. We can start to resemble our Father in likeness and in kindness, but by grace through faith, 
not of ourselves. And to remember that, to celebrate that, we're going to land the plane here, um, taking, taking the bread and the cup together. So our ushers, it's your go time. Come on, grab the cups and bread, and you can come to the front, and we'll start passing those. Um, we do have today gluten-free options. I know. I, there was a bet made on whether or not I would joke about it. So I'm going to be the bigger person, and someone's going to win a bet. <laughs> right? Kind of. Um, when, Jesus, when, when Paul teaches on this in Corinthians 11, he says those who will take the bread and the cup, he says those who don't do it in an unworthy manner bring judgment on themselves. I don't exactly know what that means, but I don't think we want to do it, right? So we want to take it in a worthy manner. So what does it mean to take the bread and the cup in a manner that's worthy? Well, I think we unpack what he's teaching in Corinthians 11. So three things that I want to guide us into as we receive this family meal. Um, the ushers can go ahead and pass, the, pass these elements and receive those. If you're part of Jesus' family, I want to join us in this. But these three things would need to be true of you. First of all, we look inward through confession. We said earlier, as long as our sin is hypothetical, then our Savior will be hypothetical. If you can't point to specific sins in your life and name them, then we're not going to need a real specific Savior. And the truth is, every single one of us have real sins to point to this last week. And so we confess. And the word confess means to agree with. So we confess our sins. We agree with God. We see them as God sees them. We name them as God names them. And here in John 8, the Jews, they didn't want to hear that they were walking in the ways of the seed of the serpent, lying and murderings. We want to be a people marked by repentance and confession. So before the Lord this morning, where we think of, we said children of the dark are liars. So we examine our own lying heart. Where have we been suppressing the truth? Maybe that's for you. It's been not calling sin what God calls sin. Maybe here this morning, as we take these elements, there's some things that we need to name and agree with God. Maybe it's not honoring God as he is to be honored. We say, well, I, 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 I haven't lied. I haven't cheated. I can remember but are we worshiping him as he is worthy of being worshipped? Are we magnifying Jesus in all that we say or do? We also confess as the murderous heart that's of the seed of the serpent. Je Jesus taught that a murderous heart is not just somebody who's literally committed murder. It starts, the seed of it starts with uncontrolled anger. Maybe there's uncontrolled anger in your heart this week. And he says where that leads to is we start to we start to insult other people, maybe out loud, maybe in our minds. We start devaluing them. He says, if you start thinking about people and treating them and speaking about them like they are worthless, you will eventually, that's what leads to murder. Because if I don't see your value and worth, it's no problem for me to take your life. So where is the spirit pressing in on people in your life that you are image bearers of God, that you are devaluing, that you are not loving as yourself? And I'm preaching this to my own heart as well. So I just want us to take a moment before the Lord, before we receive these elements. Do a little bit of heart work. If the Spirit's revealing something, just confess what, he, what he's naming. Give, give you a second to do that here. We look inward through confession. The next thing we do is we look backward by faith. 
I think to take this in a manner worthy is to have our eyes on Jesus. So we do that for a moment. But we don't need to do all this belly or navel-gazing introspection. We, we look inside. If the Holy Spirit points something out, we confess it. And then we move forward, right? So what we're going to see is we have forgiveness for those things. Those are just barriers for us to see Jesus. So we remove those barriers through repentance. And now we look at Jesus. We want to look backward 2,000 years ago by faith when Jesus took the humble position of a slave so that you and I could be set free as his adopted children uh, of the Heavenly Father forever. And we're about to bite into this bread, remembering the body that was broken so that you and I could be made whole. And as we drink from this little cup, his blood, his blood that was shed was given so that we could be made clean, that we could be forgiven. So through Christ's finished work, forgiveness and cleansing is offered to us. So now I just want to take a moment before the Lord to look back at that moment 2,000 years ago as Jesus hung on the cross. See him there. Take a moment to center your heart on the finished work of Jesus. Finally, we look forward in hope. I love somebody called hope a future faith. It looks forward in trust to where this is all going. And just like Abraham, we look at it from afar. We haven't seen it yet, but we believe there's a day coming when there will be no night. A day coming when Jesus will be walking around on this earth again. The light of the world came down into darkness. And when he comes, we will experience the fullness of our salvation. We will no longer experience sin and death. Jesus will reign over the earth as our king forever. Come on. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment to anchor our hope in that day. Would you look forward to the day of Jesus? Corinthians 11, Paul teaches on this. He's speaking back to that night when Jesus was with his disciples. He says in Corinthians 11, 24, um, he speaks to the body and the blood. I'll get some elements with you guys here. And he takes the bread. I think we've all got some now. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this to remember me. Let's remember him, church. And then in verse 25, he says, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, remember me. Let's remember him. And he says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together in prayer. Father, we proclaim the death of Jesus. We proclaim by faith. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the perfect God-man hung on the cross to forgive our sins, to free us from slavery of sin and the domain of darkness, to transfer us as your free adopted children. Lord, I want to pray anybody in here this morning that was not able to participate in this family meal 
to one who doesn't know Jesus as personal Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they would see that perfect substitute caught in the thicket to be placed on the altar on our behalf and receive and embrace the Father's love through the sacrifice of Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who, who are struggling to believe that they have not out the grace of God, that they have shame and guilt that they feel is too deep of a place for your healing power to touch, that turn their eyes on Jesus and see the fullness of what he's offered them and to be able to stand guilt-free, shame-free in front of their Father today, freely through the finished work of Jesus. And for those who have been tempted to believe that they can do it on their own, that they don't need to bow the knee to Jesus, they don't need to operate with him as Lord of their lives, that today would be the day of repentance, and that there is cleansing, forgiveness, and redemption through the cross of Jesus to bring us back. And, and Father, you say every time the prodigal turns back around and comes home, the Father sees him from afar and runs to him and throws his arms around the prodigal and says, welcome home, here's my ring, let's kill the calf. And so, Father, we collectively return to you in the name of your beautiful Son. And all God's people said,